Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. John and myself, Gary, is Tilt. Hello. And we record these shows about a week or so in advance. When you heard us talking about Heidi High last week, that was about a week before that we'd discussed that. So this is our first meeting, so to speak, since the announcement of the passing of Dennis Norton. So for, before we get to Grace and Favour, we could just talk for a few moments about Norton and Muir. We had an opportunity recently to see a fair bit of the 78, 79 revival of The Glums. That was very enjoyable and it prompted me to buy the DVD of the, the complete series. And the other day I was listening to some of the original Take It From Here and they are fabulous. They really are worth seeking out. Uh, I presume that they'll still be on Radio 4 Extra on a regular basis. There seemed to be a sort of back and forth on social media the other day about people saying, oh, it's, it'll be all right in the night's Dennis Norton. And then other people saying, no, 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 he was a comedy writer and so on and so on. And of course, he was both. You don't have to choose. But the interesting thing was that his career, not just with Frank Muir, but also even up to just a few years ago, he estimated that he had written for something like 170 different comedians. And according to our friend Squiddy, he'd heard an interview where Norden said that he was still writing, at least as of 2015, he was writing anonymously for people he liked. And to bring him into sitcom terms, I've described saying that Dennis Norden dying is like an entire neighbourhood in a historic city burning down because he covered so much by his presence that he was at that meeting at the BBC, I think it's mentioned in the story of sitcom, they had this meeting about doing a BBC sitcom. Okay, we can argue that the BBC invented sitcom, but they were looking at ways of tackling situation comedy on British television, and they watched this telerecording of Ozzy and Harriet. And there was that meeting, and at the end, it's like, well, we can't do that. They have a fridge. Dennis Norton was there <laughs> at that meeting. So it's not just a matter of what he wrote, who he wrote for, but also who he knew, what theories he had. There's a show called Two Pairs of Eyes, which I think was a different presenter every week. And there's one with Marty Feldman talking to comedy writers. And one of the people he goes to is Dennis Norden. Of course, Dennis Norden in that is not lovable old grandpa Dennis Norden of Looks Familiar. He's talking more sharply. And I don't mean he comes across in any way aggressive, but he's talking more like a sharp-minded professional. And so it's just fascinating where he was as well as what he did. And you do have to balance his writing career against It'll Be Alright on the Night. It would be folly to just think of him as only It'll Be Alright on the Night's Dennis Norden, but you can't overlook how important that is, how easy he made it look. Yes, and of course, a lot of the obituaries described him as the presenter of ITV's It'll Be Alright in the Night. That's accurate, but also he was the creator of that show and also its curator, because for as long as he was involved with the show, he was, with his team, selecting the clips that were going to be used. Initially, it was every couple of years or so. So it wasn't as if he was simply coming in and doing a few lines from autocue. He was involved in every aspect of that show, right from its launch. I mean, he sold the idea to Michael Grade on the phone. It's worth just remembering as well that Norton and Muir are credited with the nation's favourite comedic line. I think it was in a survey a few years ago, and it was the 
an infoliumous line, carry on Cleo, infamy. But of course, even though that's credited to Talbot Rothwell, that was originally a line from Take It From Here. So that's a, that's not a bad epitaph, is it? <laughs> uh, Ronnie Barker has the nation's favourite sketch and Dennis Norton and Frank Muir have the nation's favourite line. Further reading, Dennis Norton's autobiography of sorts, because am I right in thinking tell he, he actually said that he didn't really want to put together an autobiography in the traditional sense, and so he ended up collating I think he felt of- himself incapable of turning his own life into a narrative, so he just wrote down as many anecdotes as he could and handed them over to somebody else to group together. And it makes it incredibly readable, though, because... It's definitely something you could read on the train because you can keep breaking off. Read the whole book, you get a sense of the person, but you don't actually have to worry about, oh, how many pages are left in this chapter? How many lines are left in this? Right, I can just stop there. Nice bitty thing. I guess he had a bitty mind, at least as far as he was concerned about writing his own story. So that book is called Clips from a Life. And also Dennis Norton contributed to a book many years ago, should still be able to find copies of it. I'm presuming it's out of print now, but it'll be doing the rounds in the online booksellers. And it was describing television of the 40s and 50s. And the title of the book is Coming to You Live. And of course, that's entirely what the book is about. It's about the perils of live television and all that entails. So this week, we are still talking about David Croft, but not Jimmy Petty this time. This time, we're talking about David Croft and Jeremy Lloyd and we're going to Grace Brothers but only for a matter of minutes and then we're going to have a nice little jaunt into the country because for listeners in the UK today we're discussing Grace and Favour and if you're listening in the US we're discussing Are You Being Served Again? Let's say at the beginning um, because I think we're annoying people with our constant spoiler space. If you want any of this, any of this to come as a surprise to you, if you want to make sure that every single gag is brand new to you, don't listen to the podcast. Only listen if you're willing, because we will spoil things. Okay? Is that fine? Yeah? You ready? Okay? So, I found this a mixture, a curate's egg, I guess. I've probably used that incorrectly. I found it kind of sloppily written, sloppily plotted, and yet, those Are You Being Served people as one of the best casts in television history. I don't think there's anybody in the original cast who comes back who is frail or flagging or past their best. They're all still on. Do you remember Revolver? Yes. I think it was only Nicholas Smith. But I remember occasionally watching that and thinking, wow, they are really acting the hell out of this. No, actually, Molly Sugden and John Inman were both in Revolver as well. So this, for me, falls between two stools. There are little bits of the problems are you being served out at the time and little bits of the stuff that made it sing. Certain areas where it's like, yes, actually it can shape up to the 90s. It's not one of those disastrous revivals. I don't know. Does it have that reputation generally about, oh, that was one thing that should never have come back? No, no, not at all. And I was was exactly what I was thinking of. It doesn't have the problems of either the liver birds, where the gap is, in that case, 17 years and the situation is entirely different. And yeah, we talked about that before. And also the legacy of Reginald Perrin, which, of course, has the, the crucial 
issue of you're missing your lead actor. Now, in the case of Grace and Favour, there had already been a couple of series of I being served without the presence of young Mr. Grace. And of course, Mr. Grace was always a supporting character anyway, rather than the lead character. Yeah, exactly as you say, everybody is here. It's only seven years removed from Mario being served. It's easy to sort of forget that because there have been quite a few instances of sitcom revivals after sort of 15 or 20 years and they come back and they do a special for comic relief or children need or whatever it is. No, it certainly doesn't have that reputation as the one that, that bombed in it. We watched uh, the documentary Funny Turns about John Inman and there was a faint sensation. Actually, now I'm getting my documentaries confused. I watched a documentary about Are You Being Served and watched a documentary about John Inman. And yes, I know my voice is doing this. It's not breaking, honestly. Uh, next time Gary talks, I'm going to get up and go get some Kool-Aid. Orange, if you're wondering. I always just assume when I'm talking that you get up and leave the room anyway, so... The interviewee spoke as if it had bombed. Am I wrong in feeling that? We've definitely seen where they were talking as if it had stuttered to a halt. Which I guess it did. It didn't get a third series. And Trevor Bannister thought it was a weak premise. So there's a couple of things going on here. One is that by comparison with other shows, say Doctor at the Top, for example, which was the year before this, Grace and Favour was renewed. So there were two series of it. More to the point, when comparing it to Are You Being Served, you're talking about a huge success over 10 series spanning 13 years. So by comparison with that, a show which gets a couple of series over two years and you know, does relatively well in the ratings, you know, nothing sensational, but it certainly doesn't get moved, doesn't get shunted to elsewhere or anything like that. But by comparison with I being served, yes, it's it's not quite what it once was. But then, of course, there was never really any prospect of that. I mean, nobody was seriously going into this thinking it was going to run and run and run. If it had, I mean, it would end up becoming Last of the Summer Wine. Any series that goes on for that length of time, eventually, if you start replacing people and placing characters and changing the situation and so on and so on, it doesn't have a lot in common with its original idea. Well, Last of the Summer Wine had one thing that... Grace and Favour didn't have. What's that? Trevor Bannister. Ah, yes, indeed. Yes. Ah, right, okay, hang on a second. Let's think about this. How many people from I Being Served were in Last of Summer Wine? So, you got Trevor Bannister. He's safe. Who else? It's about 10,000 series of Last of the Summer Wine. Yeah, but there's not that many characters in I Being Served, is there? So, I don't remember Molly Sutton ever being in it. I don't remember John Emmett ever being in it. Or Mike Berry, or... I don't remember Larry Martin being in So my larger point here is that while Grace and Favour isn't a big bomb, while it isn't one of the things that gets revivals a bad name, there are problems with it. And I think one of the most galling things is there are fixable problems with it. But maybe that's partially because it's a hit team, Croft and Lloyd, and when you get to a certain level of power, you're not edited as much. And you're not told to do as much. And I have issues with this show because it's so well acted, but I don't think it's so well written. Okay, now let's start at the beginning because that's the best place to begin. And we can set the scene. So this is early 1992. And can I just say for the record that I am... I'm going to say idiot. That, that's too harsh. I'm going to say I'm a donut. Is that... That's not too explicit, is it? Is that okay? Call myself a donut? Okay. Right? The reason that I'm a donut is this show 
began on 10th of January 1992. Now, at the age of 14, I wasn't necessarily the target audience for the show anyway, but I remember being sort of immediately put off by reading the synopsis in the Radio Times, and this is entirely my fault. Reason being that the premise, as described at the beginning, young Mr. Grace, R.I.P., the staff of Grace Brothers are called in to the office, and there is stalwart sitcom supporting actor Michael Bilton, old Ned from To the Man Born. And he explains that Grace Brothers employees' pension funds have been invested in this old manor house in the country, which also has a working farm, and yeah, the amount that they're going to get for their pension is not particularly decent, and so they decide to try and run the place and run it as a going concern and make a few quid. Now, as soon as I saw that expression, their pensions have been invested in. When I saw that at the time, I thought, oh, that's a bit obvious, isn't it? I mean, Robert Maxwell died two months earlier, and then, of course, as we all know, the whole business about the state of his business dealings, including misappropriation of pension funds, came to light. So it was a huge story at the time. It was all over the news for, for weeks and months on end. And I sort of thought, oh, that's, it's a bit obvious, isn't it? It's sort of like a, a sitcom at the end of 94 or beginning of 95, having a character win the lottery, for example. It's, that's how obvious it is. But of course, years and years and years and years later, it occurs to me, of course, that that's absolute utter nonsense of the highest order because this show would have been written and recorded and in the can and, and everything long before that story came out. If it was airing in January 1992, then it would have been completed long before the full details of Maxwell came to light. So looking back on it, it's actually quite incredible just how topical it was. But it's certainly not what I thought it was. Uh, so yeah, I'm doing it. Who was the show made for? Well, now, I'm very glad you asked that question because I would say that this is... It's a Friday night show to begin with. And I would say that it is for the kind of people that Radio 2 doesn't want listening to them anymore. I was wondering if it was made for PBS. Well, it was broadcast on PBS in the same year. Which makes sense, of course, because I Being Served already was a huge hit in the States by this point. So, yeah, why enough wouldn't it? And it also aired in Australia on Network 10. Yeah, I would say it's going to be for people who remember Are You Being Served, but that's not essential. It's not like it's full of in-jokes about Grace Brothers. That would have been actually fabulous. I would have really liked it if it had been full of references to previous episodes of Are You Being Served and if you were not completely conversant in every single one of those episodes, like all 70-odd of them, then you couldn't get any of the references in Grace and Favour. I would think that would have been marvellous. I would have loved it if they'd done that. Are you being served Infinity War? <laughs> I see a number of overlapping ideas here, you see, that I don't think are really meant to overlap. I have on occasion read criticisms of films where said if you actually concentrate, you can almost see the different coloured pages in the script where it's like suddenly a character's motivation changes because, okay, this scene's actually from the earlier version and the next scene's from the rewrite. It's a good strong premise here. Premise is only as good as his execution, but it's not a hard sell. The Are You Being Served team are in charge of a hotel. Uh, this was an idea that was floated for a revival of Gilligan's Island. 
at one point, this idea that they'd all gone back to the island and a hotel had been opened on it, and it was going to be like a cross between the love boat and Gilligan's Island. So hotel, right, so there's lots of chances for people to come and go. And part of me's thinking, and you can sell it to PBS, and look, it's Are You Being Served meets Faulty Towers. They're running a hotel, and things go wrong, and we can also bring in guest stars. And then there's Are You Being Served Down on the Farm? Because, okay, there's a working farm. Maybe there's some gags out of that. But for the first few episodes, it's really about the farm. And it's really just about them falling over in muck. Then there are points when we get definite plot threads running through things. And other times when we could do with a plot thread running through things and it doesn't run. And when I say that, I mean sometimes within an episode... (laughs) This, even more than some of the things that happened on Dad's Army, is by far the worst of these shows I've seen for. And that's 29 minutes. Bye. We set up the idea. We don't actually have to take it to a conclusion. Yeah, I'll give you that. I was going to argue the toss and say, does everything need a conclusion? But no, I'm going to give you that. We've talked before about BBC shows of this era and how they look. And there's a bit of this going on. I don't think it's quite as... I think this looks really nice. It's also at a really interesting point in television when we're kind of getting a bit of a single camera feel. There's a lot of studio scenes, and I'm guessing, yes, it's it's all live audience, but there are a lot more scenes outside, but of course it's all outside broadcast. It's all videotape or interlaced or whatever you want to call it. And there's just that interesting little period when maybe just maybe the video look might have its own evolution alongside everything else. Well, of course, what happened was it got replaced on most things. This is an expensive-looking series, okay? It's, it's all video look, but it's wonderfully lit, and I think it's nicely coloured as well. I think it's got a decent saturation. It doesn't have the... Or do you disagree? Do you think it has that washed-out look? No, I was going to say that it's not quite as washed out looking as something like Mulberry or, say, early One Foot in the Grave, for example. But it doesn't have quite the same sort of visual appeal of inside the Grace Brothers store. I'm just going to go off on a quick tangent here. I haven't really got any point here. It's more to just throw this out, and I'm sure there'll be people who are much, much better qualified than ourselves to actually comment on this. So if people are interested in starting a Twitter conversation about this, then go for it. I was just going to say, first of all, that Hurry for Tea, that has the studio VT slash film approach, and that's only a couple of years after this, in 94. Yeah, I think I'm right in saying that One Foot in the Grave, which started in, I think, 89, and ran through to about 97 initially, I think that's all VT and film. I don't think there's any series of that which have outdoors on VT. So I don't know if this comes down to which department it's made by, or if it comes down to producer. I also think it's the technology. Because that's the thing. It's not just that it's outdoors on VT. I've watched enough ITV shows not to be dazzled by outdoors VT. I think a lot of the upchat line connection has a lot of location VT on that. It's a Thames show. I'm not saying I don't want to be one of those people who says it looks cheap, but there are certain visual limitations they're probably technological limitations there's probably something going on that isn't in this this looks like map and lucia map and lucia was all vt but all very expensive looking they've had time 
to spend on the lighting that other shows haven't. And so in, in some ways it looks more expensive than a lot of location film things look. Because in TV shows of that period, a lot of location film looked like news footage. It was lit so you could see it. Now, this might be just the hardware as well. It might now be that the kind of cameras they have, they're not only portable, they can also drink in this much light. They can also resolve color this way. But that's one of the things that really struck me about this. And of course, there's a lot of incidental music in this. So it feels like it has one foot in the way things were going to become. The incidental music is something I really like in this series. I've loved it if there'd been an album released of it. Speaking of <laughs> To The Man Are Born, did you it. notice the theme tune turning up when they were driving up? Yes, yes. By the way, quick rewind. You've mentioned the Upchat connection, so I think that you have to now mention the exterior of the two restaurants and the backdrop. Oh, hell yes. Yeah, quick thing. So uh, the exterior of two restaurants, he's running between two restaurants. It's a studio set, and in the background, they've blue-screened film. It's not a photographic blow-up. They've not blue-screened a still. They've blue-screened moving film of a road and a building across the road, and it's a very peculiar look. You're looking at VTM film at the same time. So that's that. People are talking now about cinematic television. Oh, goddamn cinematic television. Sorry, I just, uh, I can't remember the name of the show I was watching the other day, and I swear it was in Cinemascope or something. Like, <laughs> I've got my widescreen TV, and it's bad enough that if I just, you know, want to take a look at Handmaid's Tale, oh, that's got little black bars. No, 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 no. We have to have big black bars at the top and the bottom. This isn't going to be shown in theatres. This is not. This is a television profit. I think it was um, Amazon. It was streaming. Okay, streaming is proper telly, but are they going to make us buy widescreen televisions? Are they doing that so that we can't watch 4x3 anymore? How dare you watch something old? And eventually it's just going to be, um, there's going to be a little chip inside that detects what year from certain, you know, focal qualities and film stock and says, oh, you can't watch this. Sorry, what was it? So, oh, yeah, so episode. you can actually see. <laughs> <laughs> you can kind of see the transition to cinematic television a little bit in this. Because the other thing is, despite these VT exteriors, despite this quality of being done single camera, the pace is fine. The pace does not fall slack. Did you find that? Well, the outdoors yes, scenes matched the indoor scenes for pace, which is unusual. So this is technologically, this is a fascinating show. I take on board what you're saying about there's lots of different plot points all pulling in different directions and what have you. That's fair enough. There is one other issue with this, and it sounds like we're being really negative about it, and we're not really meaning to. Actually, oh, I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to no, I'm going to I'm going to hold on to it because I don't need to introduce this because we've been talking for a while and we haven't actually discussed the cast or what they're doing or anything. So, okay, our cast is the core group of Grace Brothers. So we have. Mr. Rumbled, we've got Captain Peacock, we've got Mr. Humphreys, we've got Mrs. Slocum, and we've got Miss Brahms. I have read previously that there was a suggestion of Trevor Bannister actually being in this show. Even though Trevor Bannister had left Are You Being Served after Series 7, supposedly the option for him to come back in this was there, but that's not something that happened. Well, supposedly he turned it down because he didn't like the idea. 
I don't know that we know that for sure. I don't know what the reason is that he. Um, he's it definitely down. on we record know, we know saying it was a weak premise. Yeah, we know he didn't like the show that resulted. So our core group, they go off to Millstone Manor, as it's called, and here we've got Mr. Rumble, who's already running the place. He's already in charge, and slight mishap, all the staff have left. So we have a situation where. There aren't any guests, and that goes on for a while. When is it that the guests turn up? Is it episode five or something? And in the meantime, when they hear how much they're going to get as a monthly pension, they think, okay, well, let's just try and make a few bob out of this. So there we are. That's our premise. And of course, it is in the country by the farm. We have a farmer, and we have the farmer's daughter. And we've also got as well Mr. Gracie's former secretary, who is ensconced in the place as well. Because you had a theory about this, but basically, particularly in latter years, there was always a secretary nearby, Mr. Grace, and then Mr. Rumble. And quite often, she would be the object of Captain Peacock's attractions. And that is the case in this instance as well. Now, you had a theory about the kind of role that this was and how it compared to Are You Being Served? Because it's slightly different. I'm just blowing smoke here. I'm just guessing. Because the sexy secretaries tended to be... I don't think bimbos is necessarily the wrong word. I'm not judging on the actresses or anything like that. But they just tended to be pretty and they weren't portrayed as being much of anything, really. They weren't portrayed as being stupid or intelligent. They were just there. They would misunderstand if it was funny or they would confuse Captain Peacock or Mr. Rumbold or old or young Mr. Grace if it was funny. Miss Lovelock in this is far sharper. And this almost feels like they've been given notes saying it's the 90s. She's got to be an empowered woman. And it kind of throws things off balance a bit because she comes in and she's posing. She's got short skirts and things like that. That sounded so foggy as it came out of my mouth. <laughs> What's the actress's name? Joanne Haywood. Well, she has the kind of legs that ZZ Top sang about. What, in this show? I've made ZZ Top sound like <laughs> Troys and his banjoliers. You never expected to see them close the first episode, <laughs> did you? But it's memorable. So she's there as eye candy, but she also has to be written as a smart cookie. And I just think it throws the general character dynamic off. It would have been nice to get somebody like Vivian Johnson back. Time's moving on for these people. The world is changing. And why not see how the world's changing for someone like her? Why not get somebody back? It's a shame because there are interesting little moments. So there is this whole thing about Captain Peacock fancies her. But there is this thing, this slight sense of attraction back. And there's a nice little scene where they're chatting. And she said, I wish I knew you then. You know me now. It's not the same. It's quite sad in a way, but no, it's it's not the best use of the role. I don't think I don't think it's the best use of the actress. A lot of points it reminded me of Patricia Hodge in the Legacy of Reginald Perrin, because that was all about how everybody fancied her, and it was like I, I don't know if we really need this <laughs> dynamic bringing into this. So that's another thing that doesn't quite work. There are contradictory impulses, and I get the feeling that, yeah, it's, it's 1992, so on the 
management side, there are probably more notes being passed. There are probably more decisions being taken for the creatives. And nobody's had the sense to say no or yes. Now, I was just going to say there, you can't say impulses before the watershed. But then it reminded me that actually, in terms of innuendo and what have you, this is quite, I don't know if you would say racy, but it's quite rumbustious, isn't it? Have we ever talked in full about the carry-on problem? I'm not aware that the carry-ons have any problem. And I own a copy of Carry-On Emmanuel on DVD. We've often had the long conversations about why is it you can't bring the carry-ons back? Why is it that the prospect of a new carry-on film is so depressing? Why is it if it actually goes before the cameras this time, you know it's going to be dreadful? Why was Carry-On Columbus not so good? Despite the fact that it had lots of those kinds of actors and lots of the newer kinds of actors. And one of the things we said is, People will sit down and write a lot of ooh jokes first and said, right, if you absolutely had to, somebody says, on pain of death, you have to bring back the carry-on franchise. The first thing you do is you work out a premise you think has got potential and you make sure it's full of jokes. And then in the second or third draft, you make sure once a scene, there's a little bit of a boing, little bit of a nudge wink. But first, you make sure it's full of gags. You don't sit down and start thinking about innuendi. I'm partially Italian, you know, so that's why I use the correct plural. You don't do that first. And I never want to hear the word pussy again, man. <laughs> this reminded me, on occasion, because there are bits and pieces where the innuendos are flying and the audience are very much enjoying it. And it reminds me a little bit of some of the later Are You Being Served episodes. And that's what this show feels like. The pecking order is an issue. And it's an issue that goes back further than Grace and Favour. So early Are You Being Served, which concentrates initially on Mr. Lucas and then becomes more of an ensemble piece, the first few series are very much focused on the pyramid. The situation of Mr. Grace, who is obviously all-powerful. Mr. Rumble will look skywards when he's discussing the decisions that are made at boardroom level. And we are given to believe that there are many, many layers of management. And then we have Captain Peacock, who's very precise about what kind of carnation he's allowed to have in his jacket, the type of hat that he's allowed to wear, the very, very precise rules about all of this kind of thing. And gradually, as the series goes on, that becomes less and less of an issue. It comes back on occasion if the plot depends upon it, but it's no longer absolutely pivotal. Now, in this particular instance, we don't have any picking order at all, at least not initially. We do have Mr. Rumble, who is nominally in charge of running Millstone Manor, but the staff, so to speak, the Grace Brothers staff, this is their business in a way. So they're not paid employees per se. They're not working for Mr. Rumbled. So there's something missing there where, as John Inman described it, there was no threat. And that's something which they do address later on in the second series. But it's framed in 
as much as Mr. Rumbold is seen as overstepping the mark by giving out orders and so on, where he's not in a position to do that anymore. It's explored a little bit, but not in depth. It would have been nice to actually have all the staff in the sitting room. Maybe there's a power cup and they've just got candlelight. And they actually just start talking about the fact that the old setup is gone. And they're still referring to each other as Mr. and Mrs. and Miss when they don't have to. It's not as stark as... Because we already gave the no spoiler alert. I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that the conclusion of A&R Hot Mum sees the personnel stationed in India return to the UK. And as such, they are no longer bound by their previous rank. It's not as stark as that, but there is something missing as a result. You've got a little bit of class play in here because you've got the farmer who's very coarse and you've still, of course, all the characters have still got the same characteristics, so you've still got Mrs. Slocum and Captain Peacock to an extent giving themselves sort of airs and graces, but there's something lacking as a result of the, the, the change of situation. That was one thing I didn't miss. Because the characters were strong enough, it was, okay, these people have gone beyond co-employees, they're now kind of friends, and they're all in it together, and we all have a good sense of what they'll do. I was fine with that lack of peril, because the threat is, is that they mismanage the place and end up losing a fortune. Or they mismanage the place and end up going their separate ways. That's the threat. There could be a threat to their friendships which definitely exists. So, um, I'm sorry, I'm being a contrarian. Of all the things that I'm picking on, that wasn't one of them. I thought the sense of camaraderie between them was very believable. And I did quite like the sense that it was them versus Rumbold to an extent. So there was still a little bit of a level. And, but also, of course, reminding Captain Peacock that he's on the same level is also a nice way of getting a little bit of pompous Captain Peacock getting the wind taken out of his sails. I didn't think that was a structural problem also some of the innuendo is actually pretty good some of it is bad but i don't know maybe it's jeremy lloyd maybe it's david croft maybe it's both of them together walking into a shop and saying hello i'd like to buy a sorry what's that that's a vacuum cleaner and then falling to his knees and going there's a vacuum cleaner called a goblin Thank you, God! Oh boy, have I got a line around this! So yeah, sometimes it has this little, let's explore the characters, which seems counterintuitive. I complained about how there wasn't enough there for the legacy of Reginald Perrin. I mean, the legacy Reginald Perrin, all of them, has a, a far more sophisticated reputation than Are You Being Served? But this, that scene with Captain Peacock on the back of a motorbike fantasizing about winning a race, it's a characterization beat. And I found it very watchable and very likable. So there's this sense that, well, yeah, okay, maybe we're getting to know Captain Peacock as a person. And it's nice that there's room for that. And then on the other hand, it is really just, oh, let's all be our two dimensional selves. One of the characters that I think suffers from this transfer is Miss Brahms. Because Wendy Richard, she might be the youngest, but she's no longer young. It doesn't leave her with quite as much to do. They, they, they kind of play on the fact that she was she from Catford. So some gags have got out about how she might be 
a bit more common than the rest, but she wasn't given quite as much to do. And then there's Mr. Humphreys. Well, now, now here's the thing about this, because just as an aside, one thing that did strike me as slightly puzzling, and I understand why it's not really something that can easily be addressed, because if you start to address this, then you start to pick apart the entire premise. But you're slightly puzzled at how quickly they all agree to just live at Millstone Manor. And you're sort of thinking, well, haven't they all got, like, properties and families and things like that? Now, we're led to believe that in the case of Miss Brams, it's something which is discussed in probably more detail than I think you ever would have got in Are You Being Served. She actually talks about how she's had a relationship recently come to an end with a married man. And that's the kind of thing that might be sort of alluded to in just like a passing comment, you know, in, in the original series. But in this series, it's, it's not really played even greatly for laughs. It's just sort of there. We, we've already established that Mrs. Slocum's husband had done a runner previously. But otherwise, I don't think we have any reference to Mrs. Rumbold or Mrs. Peacock. Mrs. Peacock was... No, the, we, we do know what happened to Mrs. Rumbold. Oh, do we? Yeah, she left him. Right, okay, that, that passed me by entirely. Mrs. Peacock did appear several times in I Being Served. I don't know that we have any reference to her in this. But when it comes to Mr. Humphreys, I think I suggested to yourself whilst we were watching this that Mr. Humphreys seems to have sort of regressed. And this is not exclusive to Grace and Favour. In the last couple of seasons of I Being Served, he's portrayed very much as a sheltered mummy's boy. He's got his Paddington bear you sort of just get the impression that he's had a, a very careful upbringing and he lives for his work. There's one moment where he talks about being on the phone to Mrs. Slocum every evening. And of course, he's always on the phone to his mother and what have you. But that's not how Mr. Humphreys was originally portrayed. In the earlier series, Mr. Humphreys is, is portrayed as, I don't want to say gore, but <laughs> his... Tales of what he's been getting up to the night before and at the weekend and all manner of things, it really makes out that he's not quite Hunter S. Thompson, but he knows a lot of people in a lot of different positions, I was going to say, in a lot of different places, a lot of different backgrounds, and he's either a complete and utter fantasist or he is somebody who is gregarious and a social butterfly. I have to say on my bingo card of things to mention when talking about Grace and Favour, there is no Hunter S. Thompson Square on here. <laughs> but by the time we get to Grace and Favour, yes, it's continuing from sort of where we left off by Series 10 of I Being Served, which is Mr. Humphreys is, he's, he's had a sort of mollycoddled life and we're sort of given to believe that he has left home for the first time ever in this series. Right, well, this is conscious though, isn't it? And I think it's because of one of the great bits of flummery in the face of criticism. This idea that, oh no, Mr. Humphreys was never written as gay. Which, okay, if we take that as read, nearly everything he says is a non sequitur. It doesn't make sense, Some of the, a lot of the things he says. They're only funny because they're allusions to the gay lifestyle. You know, jokes about sailors and things like that. Now, whether you want to say that they were offensive, they weren't offensive, and we've called it the Mr. Humphreys problem before, which is that message will be read by different people in different ways. So for some people, Mr. Humphreys is gay 
and he's a mincing and ridiculous figure. They are justified in their animosity towards gay people. It's a bad thing. And for other parts of the audience, Mr. Humphreys is gay. He is likable. He's the most likable character. He's good friends with Mr. Lucas. Certainly in early episodes, they're just chatting about what they did at the weekend. And you can imagine, yeah, they're mates. They might not be particularly close, but you could actually imagine them going out for a pint at some point. Maybe just if, like, there's a the fire alarm goes off or something, it's like, well, we can't get back in there for you fancy nip around the corner. So that's really interesting. So for some of the audience, it's like, well, he's all right. He minces around, but he's a nice fella. Dick Lucas isn't scared of him. Of course, there comes a point where it's like, this isn't helping. We now need to move past Mr. Humphreys. But that doesn't mean throwing away Mr. Humphreys. But that becomes the problem then. Sometimes we tie ourselves in knots talking about these things because I don't want this sense that if we can say that this is bad, they shouldn't have done this. Love Thy Neighbor kind of botches its racial politics. Its heart's in the right place, but sometimes it will go for an easy laugh without considering the effect it will have is entirely different from we are going to take your old sitcoms away. And by the same token, us saying, look, there's a difference between ignorance, malice, active malice, passive malice, and all this stuff is not the same as us defending every dreadful form of oppression just because it makes us laugh. It's not even the truth being somewhere in the middle. The truth is scattered at a million different points between two extremes and some of them are over there and some of them are over there and we can't see all of them anyway the mr humphreys problem so there came a point when i think mr humphreys had had his day as the leading gay character on tv not so much had his you know shouldn't have been on tv but there came a point when i think people should have moved past him as the image croft and lloyd's defense at the idea that mr humphreys was an offensive gay stereotype was to say that he wasn't gay at all. He was just a sissy and a mummy's boy. And it's bull. And I think that's when you get this, okay, let's start writing him more as a mummy's boy. Let's have him speak less about uh, how many sailors he encountered at the weekend. Can I just chip in here? And I know that I'm not part of the Tumblr generation. So this maybe is my area. Although in a way, maybe it should be everybody's area. Let's be honest about it. Mr. Humphreys was bisexual. There are enough clues in the text. I was getting to that, actually. I was going to do the Kinsey scale thing. but I'd say he's between four and five on the Kinsey scale. But the whole thing is, uh, Mr. Humphreys has a sexual attraction towards men. Maybe not an exclusive sexual attraction towards men, but that a lot of his jokes rest on that. And a lot of his jokes rest not only on that, but also the idea that he is an active and happy part of that culture. He knows the places, he likes hanging out with that crowd, and I'm thinking the mummy's boy thing is coming in as they try to downplay that because they're trying to justify their stance that he isn't, because somehow if he isn't, that problem goes away. And in this, uh, we kind of get the straightening out of Mr. Humphreys. Now, you are right, there are definitely a few times when he mildly surprises himself, but he expresses a bit of surprise that he's turned on by a lady. So, in grace and favour, Mr. Humphreys is surprised to suddenly find himself sharing his boudoir with Mavis, who is the farmer's daughter. The farmer, by the way, is played by Billy Burden, who is a regular in Oh Happy Band, the 
David Croft, 1980 series with Harry Worth, and also appears uh, on a handful of occasions in Heidi High. Now in here, he plays Morris Moulterd. M-O-U-L-T-E-R-D, as he's keen to point out. And his daughter, played by Fleur Bennett, is Mavis. And here she is, getting into bed with Mr Humphreys. And Mr Humphreys is somewhat surprised about this. But eventually he sort of goes along with it. And there's nothing going on, as, as far as we understand. Do you think that's the case? I mean, this is a flight of fancy. But are, are we given to <laughs> believe that at any point the relationship is consummated? Right, well, let's tackle this, as the chorus boy said to the sailor. <laughs> they give him a girlfriend, effectively. And again, they try and have their cake and eat it. And on the one hand, it's it's not like I've seen any films like this, but it was scratching in the back of my head that there's some sort of literary or cinematic fantasy about meeting a buxom young farm girl who is not worldly wise. And and that seems to be being played out, but being played out for Mr. Humphreys. So it's an odd, queasy feeling. You know what I mean by that kind of fantasy? Mm-hmm, yeah. Now, okay, but now you can argue in this case that... Mavis is the sort of boldly wise figure in this relationship, isn't she? In, in, in this particular world, because she knows yeah, but the she's location. Yeah, kind of infantilised, though. I mean, she's always worried about her father giving her the strap. And so sometimes it feels a bit off. And it's a shame because at other times it's quite a nice little relationship. There's three things happening. Mr. Humphreys has a friend, proper friend. Somebody to talk to at night. That's good. That's fine. Friend. You don't get this reference, do you? Everybody else who's listening to this knows what I mean by this. Oh, friend. On the other hand, I've just realized we're going to have three hands here. On another tack, it's also now we're kind of de-gayifying Mr. Humphreys. And then in this other corner here, uh, we've got that odd, creepy little fantasy of... The unworldly buxom farm girl who in some ways is something of a child. Just sometimes it, it just felt a bit skeevy, you know? No criticism of Fleur Bennett. She's got presence. The camera loves her. But then this becomes another problem, which is the closer and closer they get, the more it's like, this isn't going anywhere, is it? And at some point, the fact this isn't going anywhere is going to be quite annoying. It would be one thing if you kind of allowed the relationship to plateau, but it seems to become increasingly obvious that she's being written in that she's kind of in love with Mr. Humphreys and that Mr. Humphreys isn't sure what to do in this situation. I suppose it's so you can kind of get that slightly frightened. Hey, goes back to George Formby, mother! Sexually frightened men are funny. But especially when she just blasely suggests, uh, oh, maybe we should get married. It's like, wow, if she's just, like, proposing marriage like that, haul or cut bait. Now, if this series was going to end and they knew it was going to end, the BBC said, right, you get six more. You got a third series, six more, but that's it. We're done, okay? That's a number we need. I'm going to say, the last episode being Mr. Humphreys marries Mavis Moulthurt might not be a bad bit of telly. It could happen, yes. Yeah, the jokes happen. you could have about him, the way he's dressed, you can actually have that thing about she grabs him 
you know, and holds him in that sort of tango pose, kisses him, and when they come up, he's got the veil on. <laughs> the things you could do there would be quite amusing, but yeah, it's, it's a bit of a peculiar thing going on there. Okay, so over the course of the two series, the plot itself, it's... When I say plot, I mean, there, there is a running storyline through all of these episodes, so there is continuity in play here. We begin, like we said, with the, the premise being set up, and then over the course of the first series, we find Mrs. Slocum in court, charged with stealing a gypsy cart. I'm just reading the verbatim what the description is. And we have the presence of, believe it or not, guests in the hotel. And so... Even then, though, guests to... are never big characters in and of themselves. They're not even there to react particularly. They're just there to show us this hotel has guests. A waste of the premise. Because surely, wouldn't that be one of the great joys, is you could bring in other people from the Croft Perry Lloyd Axis rep company. I don't mean the characters, I'm not talking about universe building, but let's write something that Jeffrey Holland could do a really right. He can come in one week. That seems to me to kind of write itself. We do, we do, we do, do have one instance of that. <laughs> and that That's is, a very um... interesting and peculiar instance, if we're thinking about the same one, yeah? Yes, well, there's a couple of other well-known faces who appear on a couple of occasions over the course of the two series. One is Eric Dodson, who is the magistrate. And by his side is one Celia Littlewood, who is played by Diane Holland, who, of course... Oh, man. I'm going to go Tumblr on you again. No, 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 no. Dan Holland, who was a fawn. Stuart Hargreaves in Heidi High. See you last week for details. And there's a little joke about her being attracted to Miss Brahms. And I think it comes across as a bit mean. They're just laughing at the fact. In fact, it actually gets a round of applause, doesn't it? Just She gives a little wave and everybody gives this big uproarious laugh and then starts clapping. Uh, no, it feels like they could have done that a bit kinder. That whole episode, the court case, it's a bit odd in its positioning because you'd think that the the entire first series would be about the original premise and the court case just seems to completely go off a tangent. This is like the kind of thing that you probably do maybe you know three or four series in. You've also got an episode where the place gets haunted and what have you in. That's just bonkers because the supernatural is real and at the end they absolutely do need to keep the remains of a mummified cat hidden in the walls of the mansion. That's the resolution as far as we can tell. No, that's a different one. That's series two. Okay, well, but there's haunting happening there as well. And supernatural events, they're not really explicable the way the beds are moving, the way the fog comes out of a chest. Uh, and in the end, they have to go get the mummified cat and put it back in the wall where they found it. It's like an M.R. James story, but one where there's no proper ending. I've got a rather bizarre opening to series two because we end up with a police siege with PC Roger Sloman in charge. And also an appearance by Richard Lumsden, who within a couple of years is a regular in the Simon Nye sitcom Is It Legal on ITV. But it's all a bit silly. By that point, the cricket match is a good episode. You've got, for the first time there, you've got some interaction with the rest of the village that we hear about, but we never really see. And that's the first time that we see other people from the local area meeting the core group. We've also got Mr. Slocum turning up, who doesn't recognise Mrs. Slocum, even though she's in front of him. 
which seems she's odd. got a hat on and she goes ooh and that's enough but later on she hasn't even got the hat on has she so oh, i don't know it is an opportunity for john inman to do his one-toothed old man routine there's quite a few of these though that end with you know how some of those are you being served ended with let's put on silly costumes and do a silly dance with very little reason to do so. There's a lot of that in this. You had concerns at one point. All I had when we were watching the episode was, oh no. And all it was was that you'd seen the episode title and you'd seen the thumbnail of the episode and you had concerns about how this was going to go. And I don't really think, it didn't turn out the way that you feared, did it? No. It's bad enough that I've been picking here on all of the potential offences this show could give. I'm not calling out anybody on their oppression. I'm just saying you could make that kinder. So, yes, Southeast Asians in sitcoms, sitcoms of this type, I probably have a bit of a rep now for white knighting for the Southeast Asian community, and I'm pointing it out as a matter of interest. I'm pointing it out because social change Isn't it interesting that it's a little bit slower in this area? I'm not saying it's not to be protested. It's not my place to protest. It's not my place to get angry about it. And I've never even seen Talons of Wang Chiang. You have seen that new Avengers episode, though. So here, oh yeah, with Baron Greenback. So some Mongolians come and stay. The point about this lack of joined up thinking, because a couple of weeks before, the lawyer comes in, the solicitor comes round, and is talking about some business deal that might involve the manor and someone in Bangkok. So it's like, right, okay, that makes sense. So you want a bunch of people from Southeast Asia. The comedic jumping off point for this is not laughing at their culture. It's the fact that they want to see some traditional British culture being presented to them. It just turns out it's putting on funny costumes and having a dance. I'm just thinking that's a little bit of joining up they could have done. But they didn't. I'm dealing with somebody in Bangkok. I'm going to Bangkok. That's it. Two weeks later, here are some people from Mongolia. We could have had them be Thai. We have other things carrying over, so the whole thing of Mrs. Slocum stealing the cart. We have that constant thing about how all the boys in the village are now out for Mr. Humphreys because they think he's stealing Mavis away from them. The final episode... Now, you've got all these categorizations, haven't you? It's like the blankety-blank seating arrangement. It's not really anything, is it? It's, it's not, not definitive, ending, no, it's not it's, acknowledged. It's, it's no, it's just... Unacknowledged, it just happened. This is just the last one they made. It's not the last episode. There's lots of sheep running around. So, the debate rages on. Should this have been called Are You Being Served Again in the UK? Which is what John Emman said that he would have preferred. I think it credits the audience with a little bit of intelligence that it's not. And Are You Being Served Again? It's not a joke, it's not a pun, it's not a natural phrase. I mean, still open all hours is bad enough, but it just kind of holds together as a concept. But are you being served again? No, grace and favour is fine. Well, if you want to see the location, Millstone Manor, then I understand it's actually in Tetbury, and it's at a place called Chavonage House. So that's where the exteriors were filmed. The complete series is available. It wasn't available in the UK for quite some time. It was available in the States since... 2004 and eventually came out in Australia but as of a couple of years ago it was released on Region 2 and both series are available I don't actually remember I really don't remember the last time this would have been repeated to be honest, I don't know that I've ever really seen this turn up on 
gold. You never really see it appended onto are you being served, repeat runs or anything like that. But so be it. So after I said all of that, it looks nice. It's well paced and it's got one of the best comedy casts in the history of television. It's just messily written. I enjoyed it for what it was worth. It was a good wee giggle. I think probably the best thing I could say about it would be it was nice seeing familiar faces doing things that we hadn't already seen them do. So in a way, it's comfort viewing. I don't think it should have moved from Friday night. I think that was a mistake to put it on Mondays for the second series. This is a Friday night show. Like when Bruce Forsyth's Generation game came back in 1990, originally it was on Friday nights. Perfect. Friday nights is it's comfort viewing and it's just, ah, look, it's Grace Brothers. They're back together again and different surroundings, but, you know, there they are. Do you know what? We haven't really got time now to go into this in any degree of depth, but I'll give you 30 seconds on this one, right? Should they have simply restarted Why Are You Being Served? Should they have just resumed no, Grace Brothers? they should have written a comedy about a hotel with guests. This is about 55% right. That's tricky though, isn't it? Because that's going to draw comparisons. So what? So what? Let the comparisons be drawn. It's been written by entirely different people with an entirely different worldview, and it's not really going to copy the format of Faulty Towers. No, I was talking about Amanda's by the Sea with B. Arthur. <laughs> or Sea View. Hey, yeah, when are we going to do Sea View? <laughs> No, oh, hey, I'm going to spring something on you, by the way. I haven't told you this. But in a few weeks' time on the Sitcom Club, we're going to be doing a show about forgotten sitcoms. So we're going to choose like free shows that just nobody remembers at all. And I've actually just got hold of one today that I've been after for ages. Wow. And I've finally just got hold of it, all six episodes. So we're going to put this on a viewing list. Shall I tell you what it is on air? Shall I tell you what it is? Yeah, sure. It's called A Third Time Lucky. And it stars Derek Nimmo and Nerys Hughes, and it's a Yorkshire show from 1982. So there you go. Next week, we'll be talking about another sitcom. We have a schedule, and we watched the show that we had prepared for week three, <laughs> and we sat through it, and... Uh, 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 yeah, let's push this back. So that's been kicked into the long grass. So next week, we might be going even further back into our old British world. Or maybe we'll be going forward into now we might be going into 20th century britain we might be going to 21st century america maybe something brilliant will occur to us that's neither of those in the meantime but you can follow us on twitter at the sitcom club you can find all of our previous podcasts on podnose.com and for a good time ring 01811 Ask for Wilberforce. So in the meantime, thank you very much indeed for listening to The Sitcom Club.